Check out sponsor Aviatrix's flight training to learn about multi-cloud networking and security from the Aviatrix perspective. Aviatrix.com slash flight dash training. Worth your time if you're defining your company's multi-cloud strategy or want to nail down your Aviatrix certified engineer cert. Aviatrix.com slash flight dash training. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We got a nerd show for you today, folks. We are going deep on GraphQL and then AWS AppSync with our guest, Amrit Patil. He is a senior software engineer who's been using these services. And uh, what is GraphQL? Well, Ned, what, could, could you even summarize what it is just based on this show? I, it, you know, it would be difficult to put into just one sentence, which is why we nerded out about it for yeah, 45 yeah. minutes and really dug into some some interesting implementation details. And you even had your own unique use case for it. So I, I was just enthralled by the conversation. And really, I actually think I learned a lot. I did uh, enjoy this conversation with Amrit Patel and because because he's from the developer side of the house, you ops Ooh. folks. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Amrit, welcome to the show, man. It is nice to see you here smiling on our Zoom session here this morning. <laughs> but the folks in the Day to Cloud audience do not know you. So give them a clue, man. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm a senior software engineer for a clinical trials organization. Basically, I develop uh, data applications for uh, clinical trials management and um I completed my master's in computer science and uh, I've worked at Xerox for like a couple of years. And then I moved on to, I was like, I, healthcare is more interesting. So let's get into that and start developing some applications right there. So, so Ned, Ned Ambrose, a, d- a developer, he's from the other side. Oh you know, no. we're on the operators. How did you yeah. sneak onto the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess, I guess the topics interested you guys. That's why I'm here. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing that caught our eye was you mentioned that you recently passed three of the associate level AWS exams. And I know there's lots of folks out there that are looking to get, you know, pass those exams and get those certifications. So I, I guess what we're asking for is just give us a brain dump of all the questions and answers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, well, I have like 800 questions to cover. <laughs> okay, good. All right. well, welcome to hour one of the 20 hour podcast. No, but seriously, in order to pass the exam, can you give us some tips on what you did from a studying perspective? Yes. So uh, like the three certificate uh, certifications I completed was for the solutions architect associate, the uh, developer associate, and the cloud practitioner. So, like I would say, these three these three form like the foundation for, like basically, if you want to get into the AWS world. And uh, in terms of tips and tricks, I think if if someone who's who just wants to get an exposure to AWS cloud, even if that person is a non technical person. I think you start with the AWS Cloud Practitioner exam because that yeah. that'll give you like a good overview of what all the services are, like whether it fits into the business needs and things like that. And then you move on to like the Solution Architect Associate, uh, which will give you like the architecture design principles that AWS recommends, which you should use to build your own apps. 
and like improve your system design understanding and the kind of services which you can use because the uh, the, the way i look at aws is like it's a bunch of lego blocks and you're trying to build something and if you don't know like which piece to put where i mean that's going to create havoc when you're actually building architectures and trying to understand business requirements right so the the solutions architect associate like solves uh, i mean addresses those concerns and teaches you like all the concepts you need to understand and then i continued uh, uh, towards the developer associate exam uh, certification which which is basically like you are a developer and you you just want to go more hands on and you need to understand what the services are and how to use them so it's the focus is less on architecture but more on like using these services to actually develop your applications so the so these were the, like the three certifications i i was more interested in like getting a broad exposure to aws i thought doing the aws certifications would help and then um in terms of like preparing for this uh, exam i i took a bunch of courses like there i mean these are people that i'm not paid to promote or anything but this is something <laughs> that i have followed to develop so again no business affiliations with these guys but <laughs> right. this is my personal recommendations yeah. like i looked at uh, stefan merrick's course on udemy he has multiple aws courses but the two i would strongly recommend were the solutions architect associate exam and the uh, developer associate exam certifications and then the uh, he also has uh, practice tests which are nothing but like bunch of uh, questions that you need to practice so around 300 to 350 questions that uh, with with various topics that will be asked in the exams so that though, that is one good resource that like listeners who are interested in uh, doing aws certifications can so, can you say the instructor's name again stefan merrick Steve Merrick. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I found it and we will include yes. a, a link to his Udemy stuff on in the show notes. Yes. If folks are looking to, uh, to get into those courses and check them out. Yes. And another additional resource that I would li like to mention, like this guy, the Stefan Merrick will focus more on like getting the certifications. But if you guys want to like really uh, understand uh, real world problems and how to use AWS services, do some hands-on practical labs. So, there's a course by, by Adrian Cantrell and he uh, he his courses are way too long like 50 hour <laughs> courses but the the good part is like you you feel really confident once you complete those courses so even if let's say you don't want to do the certifications you just want to understand what AWS is all about i think that this guy does a really good job of doing some practical labs and hands on so did you do primarily just online courses, you know, video instruction and that kind of thing, or, or were books part of your study? Um, I did not take any books per se, but what I did was AWS has some really good uh, documentation uh, where you have uh, white papers which cover certain areas of the exam pretty well. The, the, the another good resource is like frequently asked questions about a particular service. I think yeah. those are really good resources. And 
if if you look at the exam questions you'll notice that some of them are also asked from there and they want like readers to be aware of what all things are being asked about Mm -hmm. Back in the day, that's the way the Cisco exams were too. Um, This goes back some years. I think they've really changed how they do things. But it used to be all the answers were in Cisco documentation. And if you were familiar with the Cisco docs, you knew what you needed for the exam because it was all right there. And that's where they were drawing their questions from. I think that's changed a bit. But uh, but anyway, uh, good to know that uh, the AWS exams, there's plenty of material out there, both third party and then from AWS themselves. It's pretty good. Um, Amra, the the thrust of this conversation that we wanted to get to is about uh, a couple of things. AWS AppSync, which is a solution you've used in the AWS platform. But before we talk about that, we need to talk about what AppSync is kind of all about, which is GraphQL. Can you give us an overview of what GraphQL is? Yeah, so uh, the way I look at GraphQL is it's a data query and manipulation language for APIs. Like the way I look at APIs, REST APIs is like, it's an API architecture uh, pattern, right? And what GraphQL does is like, it's it's going to give you a way to build APIs, but using a uh, using something called as a GraphQL language. And essentially the way I look at it is like, you use this language to query data which you need from these APIs. And that's what it is. It's like, it was originally developed by Facebook and it's been there since around like 2015. But recently it's gained more popularity because of the problems it's trying to solve. So I think uh, it's pretty fun stuff. I know we are going to talk about like different things that GraphQL does for us, but yeah. It's something yeah, okay. that I think developers and everybody who's working with APIs should be aware of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let me give you a scenario where I think um, I could use GraphQL in my particular world. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been excited about GraphQL for a while when I got the, the kind of the high level of what, what it's all about. But, um, but let's say you're, you're just painting a simple scenario about podcasting, since that's the world I'm in. I want to know aggregate consumption numbers for a podcast. How many people downloaded the podcast from all these different places? So if I have a GraphQL server, it could sit in between me and a bunch of different APIs that are out there that I might need to query to find out how many downloads I got from a different from different distribution sources. So my primary podcast CDN, I could query their API. I could hit uh, Spotify's API, let's say, on Google Play, I don't know. And uh, they'll offer me all that data that I want. Um, but rather than me and my code having to hit all those individual APIs, I could instead have a GraphQL server that sits in front of those APIs, connects to them for me. I run a GraphQL query in my code, hit the GraphQL server, uh, which knows because I've set it up to talk to all those APIs for me and get back those podcast download numbers. And I could do it in a single query um, if I construct it correctly on my client side. The GraphQL is kind of the middleman there that I can customize to present to me. Uh, well, I guess we could call it a custom API because it's kind of that. I mean, that's that's, that's mm-hmm. really understating what's going on there. But but basically that. And it also gives me the advantage of um, not having to fuss with whatever crappy API the podcast download provider might be giving me. Um, They could be giving me a whole bunch of stuff in a JSON blob I don't care about necessarily if all I want to know is 
all I want to know are podcast download numbers. GraphQL lets me as the client ask for just what I want and the GraphQL server gives me just what I want without all this extraneous metadata. Yes. So so you so there's there's my scenario um right now that you you know more about GraphQL than me for sure. Do I have the idea about right or am I wrong in places? Yeah, I think you're right when you say that if you have a bunch of uh, you have data being returned by a bunch of services, you're trying to combine them and return it in one single request. Yes, that's exactly what GraphQL does. So think of it like a middleman where who's going to go and do the job for you rather than you going to each and every person and getting what you want. What GraphQL will do is behind the scenes, it'll talk to these different services which are returning the data which you need and then combine them in a of response format that will be used by the client. The, the good part is that if you try to do the same in REST world, for example, let's say you are trying the, the scenario which you mentioned, Ethan, you, you would have to make at least like three to four API calls just to get yeah. those counts from each and every service which you're talking to. <laughs> and what GraphQL does is it's going to abstract that away behind the scenes. And all you need to worry about is how your data is going to get constructed and the data sources that are going to return those data and the way you need to connect those GraphQL uh, fields to those data sources. I know these are like terms that we are going to, <laughs> that are specific to GraphQL and we can go uh, into it a bit more, but um, essentially that's what it's doing and that's what it's happening. It's it's combining data from multiple data sources into a format that the client can easily request and get data from. Okay. Okay. So, so many questions that I have. I'm not even sure. Where Let me just start with who would stand up the GraphQL server? I mean, in Ethan's example, he's standing it up to talk to these other services, but would it typically be a specific vendor who wants to tie a bunch of their APIs together and present them through a GraphQL interface to developers and they would host the server? Or do you more often see people just building their own GraphQL to server to tie together a bunch of disparate vendors that all have their own API? Like, which is, is it both? I, I'm not sure. To, to answer your question, one sentence, AppSync solves all that. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to, <laughs> to, um, but if let's say you, know, uh, you are not uh, using AppSync, you're not on AWS, but you still want to use GraphQL, then there, there are like libraries and frameworks out there. Like Apollo is one example. What Apollo does is it's, it's going to give you a client-side version of GraphQL where it's going to efficiently, if you're using a front-end framework like React, it's going to efficiently integrate that with the Apollo library and you know you can use those graph you can make graphql queries using that framework pretty easily and it takes care of a lot of like the nitty gritty details that you don't need to worry about as a developer you just need to worry about how do i construct my query and send it and get the data back right and if you are on the server side uh, the, the beauty of graphql is like you develop this query on the server side you can use the same query on the client side. You don't need to like uh, learn a new language or learn a different format to just construct this. 
Wait a minute. You actually just lost me there. You said that if I'm using the same, I could use the same query on both the server and client side. Yes. But to me, GraphQL is presenting um, a queryable endpoint. And yes. so, th so those would be different things. So how, in what sense are they the same? So, uh, so I mentioned about Apollo, right? The, yeah. the way, because on the client side, you need, how, how are you going to like request data from the client to the server? Essentially, if you've used like any libraries which make these HTTP requests to get your data, for example, Axios, right? Uh, right now, what you're doing is you're using Apollo, which is going to serve as a client to make these API calls. And the way we are doing that is using GraphQL code in that. That's that's what I meant. Like you use the GraphQL language on both the client side and send this in this in the request so that you get what you need. Yeah, the, the GraphQL language not being especially complex either. It looks like fairly plain English. With uh, you know, it, it looks it's not YAML, I don't believe, but it looks YAMLish where there's some white space and there's some the specific fields of metadata that you wish to get back and in a structured uh, single little plain text. Yes, and like. Um, if you, the the way I look at it is like it's just JSON but stripped down to only only what you need. <laughs> <laughs> that that's all I how I look at it. And essentially, if you if you are deciding on like how your request and response are going to look like, essentially what GraphQL has done is they've given you a lightweight, easy to understand syntax, where you define the request in such a way that you will shape you will specify the request in such a way that your response is going to look like um it, the way the data is going to get constructed that that's what it means right but, so, so to answer your question ned like on the graphql server side you will use the same apollo library but for the server side and now what it's going to do is it's going to talk to all these different data sources Let's say you have like a database where you have a certain bunch of data that's get that's getting stored, or you have like an external API endpoint which does the authentication part of it or a payment part of it, mm -hmm. right? So this GraphQL server is going to like handle those requests for you on the server side. And if you're using like open source libraries like Apollo, then that is going to uh, do the heavy lifting for you. That that's what. Okay, so when you say data sources, it could be an API, like a REST API that the GraphQL server is talking to, or it could be a traditional database endpoint where it's making SQL queries against. It could right. be either. Yes. Okay. Okay. So mm -hmm. that clicked a few things together for me. Mm -hmm. And I think an important point to hammer home is if any of our listeners have ever used a REST API, you know, you make that request and you have no control over how much JSON it's going to send back to you. You can might be able to filter by date or something, depending on what it is. But generally speaking, you're just going to get this gigantic payload and you have no say over the yep. format of that payload or what's in it. You just got to deal with it. Is that one of the things that GraphQL is solving, being able to modify what that payload looks like? Of course, yes. That That's one of the key features. Actually, if, if you read a little bit about GraphQL, you'll realize that this was the exact same problem the Facebook engineers were trying to solve because they were dealing with huge JSON blobs and out of which, let's say there were 10 fields or 15 fields out of which you just needed two fields to work with on the client side, right? And then what happens is it also increases the complexity of the code. 
let's say tomorrow if you want to add certain required fields to your response right then if you were in the rest world you'll have to create a different version of the api you'll have to make sure that the data getting returned is does not break the client in any way right mm-hmm. that the problem graphql solves is like you specify only what you need in this graphql query and as long as these fields are in the response you're good even if you make changes to you create like 10 different versions of the api as long as these fields are present in the response you don't have to maintain different versions because one of the problems that rest api has is like you'll have different version of apis running in different environments you'll have version 1 in test you'll have version 2 in train and then you'll have like a version 3 in prod prod right mm-hmm. so now as engineers from a maintenance point of view it's harder you don't and let's say tomorrow the requirements change then you you change version 1 but you forget version 2 and version 3 you know <laughs> then right. what are you going to do so the, essentially one other problem that uh, th- so these were one of like the versioning problems that uh, rest had and graphql solves all that because what graphql does is it's going to give you one endpoint and that endpoint is behind like a graphql schema and well, that's key yeah i mean it, it it yes it solves it from the client perspective right uh-huh. because now your client code base is easier to maintain sure you've still got but you've just shifted the work the work still has to be done but now on the graphql server right yes and but if you look at it from like a maintenance point of view isn't it easier to like uh just change your schema and you know not maintain different versions for different environments and just have like one endpoint <laughs> oh, I, I'm not arguing them. that point, right? Because yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. love this scenario. I mean, I'm thinking about different little bits of code I use here and there, and this this solves a few problems for me. Yeah, if, I if I'm willing to take on the GraphQL burden. If I think about the way you know Facebook has its native client on, I don't know, a billion, two billion devices. Yes. Not having to update all those client apps to the new API version or whatever, and instead just mm-hmm. being able to do it on the server side makes so much sense for them. And even scaled down to smaller implementations, I can see where that would make a ton of sense to do as well. Right. Another efficiency improvement I don't think we've mentioned yet, but as I was reading, I found that GraphQL servers can cache responses. Is that right? Yes, it can. Like um, at times, if if there are like frequent requests that are being made for a certain set of data, like. again if we i know we are going to talk about app sync but app sync takes care of this for you as well so so the other thing is like yes you can enable caching in um, graphql and you'll have um, uh, again apollo libraries one the, the reason i keep mentioning apollo is because i've worked with it closely but yeah uh, like there are like built in uh, features that, that this library offers where you can enable caching on graphql which will always like cache frequently used data and things like that so yeah so it it strikes me just from an architecture perspective that a graphql server is a potential spoffs or or maybe a a choke point if it's under load Mm-hmm. Is that a a concern do I have to think about that? Um from a GraphQL server I think I don't have that much knowledge to comment on that. 
<laughs> oh, because you're just going to punt us back to AppSync again, aren't you? AWS just exactly. takes care of all of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's yeah. fair enough. So, fair yeah. Enough. I, I mean, I'm the, the only thing I can I cannot like comment on uh, GraphQL server without using AWS, whether it's scalable or not. Um, oh, I think I yeah. don't have that much expertise to comment on that. <laughs> Now, you mentioned Apollo, and when I just searched for open source GraphQL, just to kind of see what came up, Apollo came up, um, and I ran into a bunch of other systems or uh, um, services as well. Prisma, mm -hmm. Hasura Community Edition, um, Meldio, or Meldio, Meldio, and then a whole bunch of programming language libraries that'll present a GraphQL API, act as a GraphQL client, et cetera. So it seems like it's incredibly well supported out there. Uh, but but each of these things kind of do something specific within the GraphQL ecosystem. They don't all do the same thing. There's servers, there's client components, there's glue in the middle, kind of kind of how you described Apollo. Um, aside from Apollo, are there other open source uh, either resources or code bases, projects that you think are interesting to mention? So I think, yeah, Prisma is another uh, library, like you mentioned, Ethan, is what... Uh, you can use for GraphQL. I think Apollo is more popular. Um, but I, I know there are like uh, companies out there who've started, like we, the, the place I work at is like a small, it's, it's like a relatively small company with, but it's growing and expanding. Mm -hmm. And the, the one of the architecture decisions, uh, discussions we had was like, tomorrow if our organization grows, can this API, scale with that and i think and we we needed something that will address like the changing business requirement needs that we always keep <laughs> always have like every three months we'll have something where you need to come and change the data again so those those things i think graphql has helped a lot in terms of like we are able to deliver products pretty quickly in like less than nine months and in a team of like two or three people. So that's pretty good. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of what Citrix was trying to do with their NetScaler product as the application delivery controller. They stopped calling it a load balancer and they're like, no, it has a fancy new name now. Okay. And they were inspecting the requests that would come in before they would forward it along to the backend service. And they would try to do things like caching or optimization or something along those lines. It could even cache database query results and return those. So it sounds a little bit like that, but even more advanced. And, you know, the things they were saying was kind of what you're saying. It improves efficiency. It lowers the burden on the back end to a certain degree. And it also adds a load balancing layer. It does GraphQL. I, I guess it kind of adds a load balancing layer to a certain degree. Have you seen it? Does AppSync do that, too? <laughs> Yes, AppSync does that. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> I think we should name this podcast to like just an AppSync podcast, you know, where I'm coming and talking about just AppSync stuff. That's it. Well, you know but, what? I think we're ready now. We're, we're ready. We're ready yes, to talk about primed. AWS AppSync. We, we got our GraphQL foundation to build the AppSync conversation on. So, so let's, let's transition, Amru. What, what is AWS AppSync? So to put it simply, like, uh, as listeners are aware, AWS has a service for <laughs> basically anything you want to do. <laughs> so AppSync is another way of, it's a fully managed GraphQL service from AWS. 
Okay. So essentially, like the the things which you mentioned Ned earlier, where if I have to set up a GraphQL server, do I need to do something? So uh, do I need to use Apollo library for that? You know, mm-hmm. things like that. So all that stuff is taken care of by AWS AppSync, including stuff like maintenance, scalability, you know, uh, responsiveness, caching. It has tighter integration with other AWS services, which uh, things like if you want to um, perform authentication using AWS Cognito, which is a Cognito, which is an authentication service from AWS, it has integration with that. If you if you're already using uh, a database that is offered by AWS, like Postgres, for example, that which uh, I think it's. Uh, AWS Aurora, that is yeah, uh, yeah. a Postgres-based implementation. It already has integration with that. So the, the the good part is like you don't need to worry about the administration side of things. Like, okay, how do I need how do I specify the configuration so that I'm able to connect to the backend database correctly? All that is taken care of behind the scenes. So yeah, that makes sense. You you as the developer then can just focus on uh, coding and not you know, the mechanics and the glue to connect these services together. If it's AppSync talking to another AWS service, then right. they just make that easier for you. That makes yeah. sense. And then, uh, like I mentioned before, a, uh, GraphQL, uh, AWS, AppSync will, look, you just need like one endpoint, which is behind which there is a schema that, that, that will be, that will make sure that the data that you're requested conforms to that schema, right? So, uh, it sits behind that endpoint and AppSync just gives you that. You don't even have to worry about like the setup and all. And there is like a good uh, UI console where you can directly like write code within AWS and uh, write these, spin up these endpoints pretty quickly. Now they call it AppSync as I was reading about this because it seems like the primary use case that AWS is citing for the service is mobile, mobile apps, where you've got people that maybe are on tenuous internet connections um, that comes and goes, and they need to work offline a little bit and then uh, sync back and so on. So you can use AppSync to sit in between potentially millions of clients and whatever your backend services are, and AppSync keeps everything, literally all of those applications in sync. Um, Is that kind of your use case, Amrit? You're using AppSync you know, because we haven't really talked about GraphQL in that context, but that's how AWS seems to be positioning this. Yes, so that I would say that is one use case. The the uh, yes, serving mobile users. So, for example, if you want to work with offline data storage, where you want to make sure that whatever changes the user is making on the client side, uh, you you your data needs to be synced with the server, right? So GraphQL offers something called as uh, subscriptions, where your client, where your AWS, uh, so where your mobile clients are uh, are going to be in sync with your um, with your backend servers using these um, subscriptions. Like I know there are key things that uh, GraphQL offers. There's something called as queries, which is essentially like what it's just a matter similar to what you use in rest which is get where you want to just query your data without modifying it and 
the the other uh, key thing that you need to understand is like mutations which is essentially when you are trying to update or delete the data or change the data in any format right and then there's something called as subscriptions where you open basically i mean if you go in the internal details is basically like a, a web connection that 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 the client is always connected to and whatever real time updates are happening on the back end those updates are getting pushed to the client so yeah so you mentioned mutations now yeah. what that seems like to me is it would be changing like a data format and normalizing it but that's not what you said it sounds like mutations is actually simply changing data in the data field itself not transforming the data in some way so the the way to look at uh, mutations is it's essentially you are trying there are basically like three crud operations as you call it right create read update and delete the mutation is like the create update and delete part of it so let's say to if you want to delete some data in the back end in graphql you'll do it through something called as mutation if you want to query the data from a particular endpoint the way you'll do it is using something called as a query so and then if you want to have like real time uh, let's say you're building a real time chat application and you want to make sure that your messages are like delivered in real time and you always want your server updates to be pushed to the client instantly then the way you will do it is using something called as subscriptions which graphql offers yeah i'm rudely cutting into this conversation to ask you where you're at with your multi cloud networking strategy cuz a few different multi cloud networking vendors they've come on as podcast guests and they've shared their approach here on the packet bushes podcast network one of those vendors is today's sponsor aviatrix and in fact you heard from aviatrix engineers and a customer as ned and i nerded out with them on the day to cloud podcast episode number 113 we covered their data plane that's common across all the different clouds giving you consistent network operations now If Aviatrix isn't a company name you know very well, don't just blow them off. I challenge you to consider all vendors that might solve your problems and Aviatrix is going out of their way to make it easy for you to include them in your upcoming multi-cloud networking bake-off. First, they are well-funded, so they're going to be around for a long time. Tell your boss Aviatrix just closed a 200 million dollar Series E funding round if you get asked. Second, Aviatrix is also offering nerdy deep dives for you, the engineer, so that you can make an informed, nuanced decision about whether Aviatrix is the right multi-cloud networking strategy for your organization. They call it flight training, and you can go for a 90-minute hands-on lab, a 5-hour deeper instructor-led hands-on experience, and even prep for the Aviatrix certified engineer certification. So, give Day 2 Cloud episode 113 a listen. and then visit aviatrix.com/flight-training to find out more. I'm hoping to take the 5-hour flight school training sometime myself soon if they can find room for me. Again, that is aviatrix.com/flight-training and let them know you heard about it on the Packet Pushers podcast network. And now, back to today's episode. AppSync is a service. So when you spin up AppSync, you don't see any of the I guess instances that are running the service in the background. Do you, do you have to worry about scaling, or like, I guess I'm curious if you have to worry about scaling and also how you're charged to use AppSync. <laughs> Is it by the transaction? <laughs> yeah, when you so, said scaling, I'm like, it's AWS, Ned. You don't have to worry about scaling until you get the bill. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's true. Um, 
So AWS AppSync is serverless behind the scenes. Okay. And um, the, the, the way I look at it is like, you go to the AppSync service, you create your own API, you're going to get an endpoint, right? And then you create whatever queries or mutation-based schema fields you need to add to the schema, right? And then um, that's it, you're done. You don't need to worry about uh, infrastructure and scaling because it'll scale based on the um, the number of requests that are coming in. Let's say you have millions of requests coming in every, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes or a day. It's mm-hmm. going to scale behind the scenes for you. So had if you try to do that on your own, you will have to set up the infrastructure in place to make sure that <laughs> the, I know Ethan's making faces here, but so you you want to avoid all that, and that was actually one of the key reasons we went with AppSync because our team we don't have like DevOps experts on our team. We wanted something that where we don't have to worry about administration and maintenance, and AppSync fits beautifully into that use case for us. Okay. And from a pricing perspective, because you're not paying per instances, I assume you're paying mm-hmm. kind of per request? Uh, yes. So there, there are like uh, 250K requests per month that, that are free. Okay. It's, it's, in, it's in free tier for the first 12 months. And like there are a million requests per month that are free. I think that's what AppSync offers. Okay. And after that, yeah, it's, it's like I think four cents per thousand or something like that. I know I yeah. exactly what it was. Yeah. They, they do. It's pretty plain. They spell it out, Ned, but yeah. it's okay. designed that if you are dealing with millions of requests, you're not going to pass out when you get the bill. It is it, <laughs> right. You know, it, it's priced reasonably. And if yes, you're just and- trying something, if you're just trying something out, you might not get charged anything yes yeah and that's what that's what that's what the good part is like 12 months and you can try this service out and see whether it's it from a cost point of view whether it fits into your business needs and then take it from there i think it's pretty neat talk to me about uh security with AppSync. um can i oh Actually, this is, goes back to even GraphQL. So I've got this GraphQL server in the middle. I've got a bunch of endpoints that are going to need their own authentication of some uh, of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then I've got GraphQL on the front end. I've got authorization coming into the GraphQL endpoint itself. Right. How does this all fit into my authentication schemes and such? So uh, from an AppSync point of view or GraphQL, just both? Well, if there's comments to make on GraphQL, start there and then, yeah, let's move into AppSync. Yeah, so if, if you did it in GraphQL's uh, world, like you'll, you'll have to use some sort of an authentication library where that, that if you are using like a third-party authentication service, this library talks to that service and makes sure that the users are authenticated, right? And But if you are in the AppSync world, you will have... Uh, you can use third-party providers out of the box because you will have configurations in place for AppSync where you can connect to these third-party servers and uh, get your users authenticated using the authorization request that was sent. 
So is the authentication a pass through from the GraphQL client through the GraphQL server to the ultimate endpoint that's being queried? Or is it like there's two authentications going on? Uh, GraphQL client to GraphQL server, and then GraphQL server to the final endpoint? Uh, no, there's just one pass through, I think. It's not uh, a GraphQL server doing an authentication thing per se. It, it's like you will have to do the authentication piece on the GraphQL uh, server side. Interesting. Okay, I wouldn't uh, have but, expected that. I, would, I, I was thinking of it more like a, like a proxy kind of a thing, I guess. But yeah, okay. It's so a the, proxy for, the, for your API request, not for authentication. Okay. Yeah. That, that does change things. And that's, that I see where AppSync is coming from, where it already has a common framework in IAM or identity and access management that it can yes. use, especially with all the native services. Right. If I'm already authenticated in IAM, now I can use that to figure out my authorization with all these other endpoints that I'm trying to talk to. Not only that, you can also, let's say you are using a third party authentication service like Auth0, for example, mm -hmm. right? AppSync has configurations in place where, because these are like OpenID Connect based uh, authentication standards, you can already configure them and you, you can specify the endpoint where you need to, like where this, this service is going to call that endpoint and authenticate your users. And you can do that within AppSync itself. Okay, okay. Yeah, because I think we might have gotten um, authorization and authentication a little bit con confused there for a second, Ethan. Yeah. I, I, I did that. I'm sorry. So authorization, yes, to answer Ethan's question. If you have, uh, like if you're using identity access management, like Ned mentioned it. So then uh, because you have certain set of rules and permissions for a given user, you could directly have authentication measures in place within AppSync using IAM. Like okay. I mentioned, because it has tighter integration with AWS services, you can easily configure them within the console <laughs> and get started. So. Right. No big surprise there. It'll be easier to consume an AWS service with AppSync than anything else. Yes. But, but if I do have some external data source I want to hook into AppSync, that, that's obviously supported, right? Yes, but if if it's an HD, it's an HTTP based endpoint, then all you need to do is like uh, AppSync has a concept called as data source, which is essentially like where your data is going to come from. It can either be a relational database, uh, like for example uh, Postgres. Mm -hmm. It can either be a NoSQL database like DynamoDB. Mm -hmm. It can be an HTTP based endpoint where but like the the to answer your question Ned, that that that's what is going to meet meet the needs it's you're going to specify the endpoint and then that endpoint gets called whenever you create a query right that's the data source and the final data source is like lambda resolvers which is essentially invoking lambda functions and we can get into that a bit more <laughs> if you want uh, yeah, yeah, I'm curious about that. W what situations would you use a Lambda resolver? Because it sounds like GraphQL is kind of doing a lot of what I might want to use Lambda for, which is to customize the response before it's returned, do these data mutations, all that kind of stuff. So why would I use Lambda as opposed to just doing it all in AppSync? Sure. So um, if 
like what AppSync does is when you want to develop these queries and mutations, you need to be familiar with something called as a velocity template language, which is, uh, it is an open source thing from Apache, but that's what it's using. Like, I've always tried to understand why why did the AWS team ever choose this VTL language? Because the syntax <laughs> is hard to read. But again, like that, that's their way of doing it. Then let's say you want to bypass all that. You you are familiar with something called as JavaScript, which is where you want to write code. So uh, and you want to do uh, you want to be like write lambda functions and use serverless technology. What AppSync gives you is like a type of data source where you can invoke this Lambda resolver whenever a request is, happens to this endpoint. And then it dep- depends on what, uh, what you want to do in Lambda. Like in your Lambda, you can, ma- you can query other endpoints directly. You can make HTTP requests or you can perform some analytical operations. You know, So that is another cool feature, I think. That, this was, that was launched pretty recently, actually June last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been widely used. I, I think we've given up on writing VTL in our, <laughs> in our organization. So we just write Lambda functions. That's all. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, you do have the, the potential to add like way more complexity there because you can pretty much put whatever you want in Lambda and have it do yes, it. And, and then of course, like if you're more familiar with Lambda, you can take advantage of all the good things that Lambda uh, functions give you. Hmm. So that, that, that's a neat addition too. So Amrit, I got a kind of a concluding question for you. You're sure. in AWS world. That's you code in that, you develop in that, that's where your infrastructure lives and so on. And so AppSync was the obvious choice for you, for your GraphQL needs. Sure. Is there a scenario you can imagine where you wouldn't have chosen AppSync, you might've gone a different direction for GraphQL? Um. Different, like, like for example, could you like clarify on that? Maybe you're multi-cloud, maybe you're on-prem. I mean, would those things change your interest in AppSync? In other words, is AppSync the best fit if you're all in on AWS and so you just use AppSync? Otherwise, you would use some kind of an independent or a third-party GraphQL server. Um, I think GraphQL will meet most of your needs. If you if you ask me, like for example, let's say you, I didn't want to do AWS, I just wanted to maintain my own thing, right? You can do GraphQL. Uh, you can use GraphQL uh, server and set it up on your own, and then you can have multiple. Uh, whenever you want to interact with different uh, data sources. You can make sure that your GraphQL server, the, 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 the problem with that is you'll have to take care of maintenance and administration and things like yep. that, right? Uh, that's, that, that's the headache that AppSync takes care of. But yes, to answer your question, you can go with um, another, you can just use Apollo, like for example, and just do GraphQL on your own and forget about it if you want. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Well, Amrit, thank you for sharing about GraphQL, AWS AppSync, and your knowledge here. If folks want to follow you on the internet, read more of your stuff, et cetera, how can they do that? So I write um, technical blogs on uh, Medium. So one of my, like, amritpartel.medium.com is the, mm-hmm. the URL for that. 
Uh, on Twitter, I go by the Twitter handle at Amrut Decoder. And um, I am also on LinkedIn if people want to connect with me. And yeah. Well, again, thank you for sharing your time. Thank you for uh, raising your hand. I believe you contacted us and said, hey, I got stuff to talk about. And this ended up being a very cool conversation. So uh, it's been wonderful to have someone that's not pure infrastructure and ops, someone from the dev side to come in and chat with us on day two cloud, because Ned, as we know, that is the reality. It's both infrastructure ops and developers all working together in the, in the modern world. So mm -hmm. it was nice to have you, uh, Amrut from the developer perspective, come and chat with us. If you want to follow Amrut on medium on Twitter, et cetera, all the links will be in the show notes at packetpushers.net or day two cloud. .io. So again, I'm going to thank you for appearing. And if you're still listening, because you wouldn't be hearing this if you weren't, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. You're amazing. If you have suggestions for future shows, topics you want Ned and I to cover, we would love to hear them. Hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow. Ned and I monitor that Twitter account, or you can fill out the form on Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Now, we know a lot of you, because we watch the GOIPs, you're listening from Silicon Valley. Maybe you've got a way cool cloud product you want to share with our audience of IT professionals. You can become a Day2 Cloud sponsor. In doing so, you will reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve, and maybe your product fixes their problem. We are never going to know unless you tell them about your amazing solution. Find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>